listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Sincere, joyous, omnivorous. Power duo Megan Enan and Alan Tyson present brings new music to audiences everywhere through theatrically informed voice and saxophone performances, curatorial projects, and collaborations across art forms. The programs created through their partnership have been praised as a fresh look at what it means to be artists in the 21st century. Megan Enan and Alan Tyson present Interweave's diverse repertoire from microtonal miniatures to pop song covers to Vondelweiser silences to heavy metal, conjuring sound worlds that are both ancient and futuristic, primal and fragile. Their stylistically varied touring recitals, This World of Yes and Black Meridian, are performed at festivals and venues across the United States to audience acclaim. Cool. Ready? So ready. So ready. So the readiest. <laughs> well, welcome both of you to Adjective New Music as one of Adjective's uh, performance partners. Uh, we're very excited about that. You, I mean, you've certainly been involved with Adjective composers before this. You know, who, who have you already worked with uh, from, from Adjective that kind of got you started with us? Oh my goodness! Okay. Uh, like, so, just that's, such a that's long a tough. Path. So I that's think, a tough question anymore because there are so many of us now. Yeah, adjective is just exploding. You've got like all these composers, and it's it's fabulous. And uh, let's see here. So I think from oh man, I think the earliest. It's hard to decide whether you want to go like chronologically with composers or who was part of adjective first and then go that direction. But Either. Uh, chronologically, I think I worked with Garrett Schumann. Uh, the earliest who is who is currently who's been a part of adjective for how long now you can fill uh, it out but, several, several um, years yeah yeah and so I so I sang on his dissertation piece bound and then he's written a number of pieces for me since and then he has also written for MIATP for a sh- for one of the pieces that's in our upcoming touring production Black Meridian is he wrote Dark Star for us, which is just an absolute banger. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I think Garrett was the first one to write for us mm-hmm. as a duo. And then Jamie. Probably. And then Jamie, mm-hmm. probably after that. And then we've been chatting with Jen Jolly a bit mm-hmm. uh, and trying to get a project going with her. Yep. Um, so yeah, there have there have been there there are folks yeah. in the in the mix. Yeah. Well, and then we've been you know. I think friends and colleagues with with so many of the adjective composers throughout time that it feels so awesome to be like an adjective house band um, at this point. <laughs> like, and because it it just feels like, oh, of course, there's so many. Everyone in adjective has their unique compositional voice, but the the collective that you have really speaks to us as performers. Right. Uh, yeah. So many different collaborative relationships that are are inspiring and exciting all of that kind of good stuff yeah so how did the two of you get started and and what was what was the impetus of like you teaming up to form this uh you know this duo megan or megan enan and alan tyson presents um well we met in person for the first time at the new music gathering in baltimore in january of 2016 um, we knew each other a little bit uh, in a composer-performer relationship, 
Um, because the previous summer, uh, Megan performed an unaccompanied voice piece of mine in New York. Um, and, but we met in person in January of 2016. And for the longest time I had wanted to be in a voice saxophone duo. I, I really wanted to make music in a, in a voice saxophone collaboration. And, and I said, Megan, we should, we should get together and make sounds sometime. And she was like, nah. No. <laughs> she was like hard, hard, hard pass hard pass no. and uh, no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding but kind of and, and I was like no I think we should we should make music together and she was like okay let's let's talk about this and I said okay look how about this I was I was living in North Carolina at the time she was living in Iowa at the time and I said okay I will drive the 15 hours to you if you set up a recital in your neck of the woods. And she was like, that sounds great. Uh, let's, let's, let's make it happen. And I said, thank you for agreeing because I've actually already commissioned a song cycle for the two of us. It's 20 minutes long and it just came in the mail this week. <laughs> and she was like, well, that's a bold move considering we've never made a sound together before to secretly commission a song cycle for us. And then and so I just kind of have a personality that's a bit extra. And then I said, well, just book a gig up in Des Moines. And so sure enough, she didn't book a, book a gig in Des Moines. She booked three gigs in the span of 48 hours in two states. Because we're both extra. Because we're both extra. And I was like, and so we, we did a few days of rehearsal. We did these two performances, one at Graceland University, uh, one at Pilgrim Chapel, mm -hmm. is it called? In, in, Kansas City. in Kansas City. And one at UMKC Conservatory in the span of 48 hours. And so it went great. We had a great time and we were like, okay, we're obviously both extra personalities. Um, let's, let's keep this going. And then uh, we did another performance later that year um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and everything just started clicking and folks started asking us to perform and we started commissioning more and more composers and requested composers. And that was about four years ago. Um, and since then, we've <laughs> we've been on a new music mission uh, and kind of nonstop. So yeah. so when you started, was there rep out there for voice and sax or have you kind of have you both been kind of like forging the path of commissioning and 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 working with composers to develop that rep? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I think that there's rep for everything. And, and so, you know, people have been composing forever. So <laughs> there's, uh, I, I knew a voice and saxophone duo back in my Baltimore days that was Elizabeth Halliday, a soprano, and uh, Zach Hershen, who's a great saxophonist and also a recording engineer. And, and so I had known some of their rep, things that I really liked that they did. And then, and then we had done a like, we had done research, we just kind of like looked around, you had wanted to be in a voice and saxophone duo, so you knew some things, right? Right. And so then we just kind of pulled, for that first tour, we pulled some things. So we did like a Lori Laitman cycle, right? Lori Laitman cycle. Yes. We did, you know, and we obviously did the Michael Young cycle that we had commissioned. And we realized that our our curatorial sense really is about expanding the repertoire and wanting to do work that we that we feel deeply called to do and that expanding the repertoire in kind of sound world, genre style influences that kind of thing as well. So 
you'll find us commissioning specifically for our shows, but that doesn't mean that we're we're not open to pieces that are already like extant pieces that already mm-hmm. exist. So it's a little bit of both, but our touring productions going forward feature all new, you know, compositions and and very rarely have like the the this is already written for it specifically this this instrumentation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a good chunk of of kind of quote unquote standard rep for voice and saxophone, some of which goes back over a hundred years actually. Um, but yeah, it didn't take us too long in our duo. It didn't take us too many performances before we realized that who we were individually and as a team, uh, that we were far more interested in commissioning new work um, and getting new work written for voice and saxophone. So um, our earliest our earliest programs had a few um, of those extant works, and then we we pretty quickly got into our own cycle of of requesting pieces specifically mm-hmm. for us. Well, and can I add on to that, which is I think one of the reasons that we do that is that one of the things that we like so much about working together on these touring shows is that they are crafted shows, a, an overarching kind of idea that multiple pieces fit into. And so these are really crafted from the compositional stage into a much larger idea. Um, so Black Meridian, the third touring production, those are all like overarching thematic ideas that include multiple different composers and compositions. Uh, and that's really important to us, which brings me to talking about our model. When we first started playing together, I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not really looking for an ensemble in which we perform a set of rep once and then it goes away. I was like, I really wanted to be, I really wanted something that functioned like a band where we yeah. have a repertoire. We do a bunch of those shows. And I was like, I'm, I'm into touring. I want to do that. I want to make sure that these works by these composers are getting into as many different places as possible. Big cities, small towns. It doesn't matter. I like, I house concerts to like concert halls. You know, I want these performances, like these compositions to live beyond that first performance so that's why you'll find us doing the, a show and then taking it as many places as possible. And it's been very cool because some of those pieces from, from This World of Yes, the first show, are the most performed piece in a composer's catalog because of that model that we use in MIETP. Well, and uh, what all of the values that Megan just outlined when she, when she told me that that's what she wanted to do, I said... Great, that's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> so it made things very easy from the get-go because I, I you know, as I'm, I'm a composer and an educator and I'm doing all of these different things. I don't have the time to learn 70 new pieces in a year. Right. So when she said, no, I would rather us pick a handful of pieces and then just work on those and tour those around for, for quite a long time that fit into my schedule really well. And I went, oh, thank goodness. You know, that's, that, that is absolutely in alignment with my goals as a performer. Um, and so, yeah, from the get-go, it was, it was pretty easy for us to start building this mission together. I mean, I think, you know, that, that idea of, you know, kind of having it be like a band, like, you know, we have our, uh, you know, we, we've kind of got the hits, and you know might 
bring in a, a new piece here, a new piece there, but you know, that I think that's just so important. And it's funny, you know, lexical tones is, is mostly a composer podcast, but when we do have performers on, that is something that I keep hearing and it's like, hmm, I guess I'm pick, you know, we're, we're talking to all the, all the performers that really value not, not just the first performance, but the eighth performance or, or whatever. And I mean, that's just so important. And, and, you know, and I hope that more performers are starting to take that model because I think we were, you know, the, the music, uh, like new music was in this period for quite a while where it was just like, okay, one and done. What's new? What's new? What's new? You know? And it's like, mm-hmm. guys, are, we're never going to develop a, you know, we're, we're never going to develop a repertoire of new music unless they get those eighth and 10th and 15th performances or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, novelty addiction is real yeah. um, in, in new music. And and for composers, it exists. Uh, it create novelty addiction creates anxiety for composers in that they're they're constantly trying to to find the, the next new thing that nobody has ever written before, which is a bit of a silly pursuit yeah. um, to me at least. And then performers get novelty addiction. Um, and they experience problems with it because they're constantly doing the, oh, well, we're going to do this world premiere and then this world premiere and then this world premiere. And then, of course, the, the, the problem with that is that it leads to burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so novelty addiction in new music makes everybody miserable. Yeah. <laughs> it makes composers super uptight and it makes performers burned out. Well, um, I feel like especially for performers, you know, there are I, I in a way I feel like we oh we did 20 world premieres this year that looks great on a grant application and mm-hmm. you know stuff i i think that you know the the way to kind of change change this novelty addiction thing is to kind of from the higher levels like how are you guys getting funding to be able to do these things is it based on everything mm. i'm doing is absolutely new or I'm actually, you know, doing things that I care about and I'm doing them a lot. And I think if that like higher level of funding gets changed, I think you'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of change, like come down in, in performers and things. I I don't know. Yeah, I I can get, I can get super soapboxy about this in a hurry. So y'all please (laughs) keep me in check. (laughs) I can turn this into a diatribe in a hurry on a Saturday morning. Well, let's, so let's get back to the music. Um, So, you know, you, Alan, you said you wanted to be in a voice and, and saxophone duo, like right from the beginning. So what is, what is it about? Like, why does the voice and the saxophone work so well together? Ooh, in your that's opinion. a beautiful question. I almost, I almost want to kick this over to Megan, but I'll just, I'll just say that I wanted to, I wanted to work with a, with a singer all the way back in undergrad. Um, and part of it is because I, I mean, I obviously love music, but I, I love film and drama, uh, almost as much. Um, and and so, of course, being a saxophonist, I don't get to communicate words. I don't get to communicate text. Um, and so when I was an undergrad, I, I got thinking, well, the best way to do this would be to do voice saxophone repertoire. Mm-hmm. And um, 
And so that was kind of the start of it for me was that I, I got thinking as a composer and performer, oh, wow, I would get to exist in the best of all possible world worlds because I would have words and what I'm doing as a saxophonist. And for a while in my undergrad, I was exploring pieces that'll, that uh, included uh, saxophone and spoken text, one person. And I, I did a couple of those and I went, ah, it's still it's still not quite the same. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I really love working, uh, uh, one of the many things that, that I just love working with Megan um, is because she is a singer who is so invested in what the text is doing, so committed to creating the world and sharing and shaping the drama of the text um, as a fundamental part of what she does as an artist uh, that in the very first week we worked together I went oh this is it this is what I've been looking for <laughs> literally for almost 20 years um, and and so that that was that was really nice yeah and I think that that the way that the ranges like sonic you know kind of pitch ranges that we get to work in offer us a lot of room. So you do have two melodic instruments, but we can both do a lot of percussive elements. We can do, we have wide ranges to work with pitch wise. So you get a lot of freedom to explore things between the two of us, which is really great if you, if you only have these two instruments that you're working with. So a duo like ours offers still a lot of range, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's, really exciting to explore plus we're both very mobile on stage so it means that we can do some of that theatrical visual element a lot easier i think yeah, yeah absolutely so we're going to look at uh several pieces from your from your rep today and uh i think four out of the five i saw come from either uh this world of yes or black meridian your two touring uh uh recitals so can you just before uh, we get into the specific pieces, can you kind of detail what each of those shows is kind of specifically about to give some context when we get to the pieces later? Sure. I'll talk about this world of yes, and then Megan can set up uh, Black Meridian. Um, this world of yes was, it was our first touring recital program. And it's basically a themed recital. I, I like to think of this world of yes as baby M-I-A-T-P. Um, <laughs> it was it's it's our it's our demo tape. Um, and, and sometimes demo tapes are great. And I think this world of yes is great. Um, and and it, it's kind of interesting because this world of yes, the first time we did it and where the show ended up, about half of the repertoire remained and half of the repertoire left. Uh, but ultimately, this world of yes ended up being a a themed recital about pathways and choices. We found a through line with all of this repertoire that we had curated and we organized it in a way that there was kind of a, a, an underlying theme um, that that we helped guide listeners through about about pathways and choices that that when you say yes to something in life, that means you have to say no to something else. Mm. Um, and if you open up one door, maybe that will open up seven more doors. If you open up another door, maybe it will lead to a dead end. Um, and so we, we had a lot of fun curating the pieces on that program and, and talking about the, the kind of yin and yang of, of human experience. 
Um, and so this world of yes, uh, which is, is a line from a really fantastic E.E. E. Cummings poem, explores exactly that idea. And we had been together for a couple of years when Megan came to me with the idea that would later become Black Meridian. Um, and since the essence of that show is really her brainchild, I think it would be, uh, I think it would, it, it would, it would benefit us to hear from her yeah. about that. So, so we were, you know, we were getting together, doing a residency at the time and we're, you know, having, having dinner, having drinks, like kind of just chatting about musical ideas. And, and as, as you do, where you're like, I really want to like think about this for a little while. <laughs> like, I'm just really excited about this thing is that, um, is I, I knew about this, this piece by Antoine Boyer called I'm Tone. And, and my friend Eddie Davis had introduced me to this piece. And I thought for the longest time that it is literally a text piece. It's one player plays one tone in the first 30 seconds of a minute. And the other player plays the, the same tone in the second 30 seconds of a minute. You pass it back and forth until one person makes the choice to stop. And then the other person realizes it. And that's the piece. And I just Whoa. like, I'm just like, my brain was just like, Oh my God, I love yeah. the concept of this piece. And also how uh, it goes on for 20 minutes, 20 plus minutes. And so I said, how, how do you perform this piece in a way that an audience is with you? Because I care very deeply about audience experience when yeah. it comes to new music. And I was just like on fire, passionate about how do you program this piece and get your audience to be like, oh my God, that's amazing. Rather <laughs> than being like, what is happening right now and why? <laughs> Constantly <laughs> like looking at their watch and like, oh my God. <laughs> right? They're yeah. like, oh God. Is this it? Is this the thing? And so, uh, and so, I feel, I feel strongly, and we both feel very strongly about not making your audience feel dumb when mm -hmm. it comes to new music, but inviting them into new sounds, new experiences, new thought processes. And this was an exciting challenge for me. And so I said, okay, I really want to figure out what do you do leading up to this. I'm tone piece that makes your audience go like, oh my gosh. And at the same time, I was thinking about, I was like, I really want to do a show around black holes mm -hmm. and cut black holes as a metaphor for a relationship that's falling apart. So I said, do you think we could combine these ideas? You know, can we, can we build an MIATP show around this? And Alan being, you know, very open and excited about things was like, let's do it. <laughs> so, so we challenge we started, accepted yeah <laughs> so we started sketching out you know what are some of the concepts and i thought for me my my thought process was if you can bring the sound to such an intense level right before you get to ein tone then ein tone feels like this reprieve but in a way that feels welcomed yeah and rather than feeling like bored or or annoyed right you so i said okay i think we need to build this and thus comes about this idea where as you get closer to the singularity in a black hole gravity condenses and i thought okay can we use the concept of groove 
intensifying as the metaphor between these two ideas. So Mm -hmm. you're really entering the event horizon through the beginning of the, of the show and the pieces are more ethereal and sparse. But then as you keep getting closer and closer to this event, then the groove intensifies, things get more and more aggressive, um, more and more overwhelming sound wise. And then the singularity is this moment where everything becomes stasis and you're still telling the story, but it becomes this moment that you've really brought people into rather than just saying, here's a thing. Good luck. (laughs) 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 So, so that's, I know that's a long way of explaining that show, but these are the kinds of experiences that I've been wanting to create, that Ellen's been wanting to create. And in our duo, we get to do it. We get to craft shows like this with the help of the composers that we commission and say, this is the story that we're trying to tell for audiences to come in, experience new music, but also have all of these ways to get into it. You know, all of these access points and, and, I love, I love that we get to do that. Yeah, so this world of yes is really, you know, kind of a themed recital in which we were figuring out our duo. And then Black Meridian is a carefully curated 80-minute one-act pastiche opera for voice and saxophone that involves us memorizing the entire show and choreography and acting. And um, so it's, it's quite a... Uh, conceptual and technical leap from our first show to our second one. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to go back to the metaphor of like having a band, this is like your concept album, you know, this is 100%, yeah, yeah. We're leaning into concept albums. In fact, like we're, we're so hungry for it that we, we even have the concept and title um, for our third show. Ooh. And we haven't even officially done the world premiere of Black Meridian yet. <laughs> we were, oh, it's, uh, we were literally days away from premiering Black Meridian last March. And thanks uh, a lot, COVID. Thanks a lot, COVID. Um, and uh, the venue where we were going to premiere it uh, shut down just days before. Um, and of course that was a year ago, (laughs) but you know, it's at least as far as black Meridian goes, it's been great because it's allowed us even more time to step back and say, all right, well, let's rethink this. And what, well, what about putting this piece here? And okay, well then we can, we can act it this way and then we can memorize this part. And, um, so it's given us just an extra year of time to at least to, to really hone it and um black meridian's just going to be devastating once we launch it we think people are going to love it that um i i did this piece for uh two percussion and electronics a, a while ago and i've kind of like abandoned it just because i don't think it works but i loved the uh the, the whole concept of it was science and um mm. the like the idea from the beginning like the beginning is literally a big bang. And then they're like, you know, okay. uh, Particles are being created. And that's Mm. like how the, how the like particles uh, matter and antimatter, like, uh, you know, are being created and and destroyed and everything. And then, so it was like the beginning of the universe. And then the second movement was like um, kind of, 
the idea of uh, spectrum and how mm -hmm. in uh, astrophysics you can learn about uh, something based only upon the light you're observing you know you can learn like right. what it's what it's created and then the last movement was just because i was so into uh neil degrasse tyson and um you know star talk and uh the uh what was his show um the um the carl sagan reboot um cosmos cosmos yes um I was so into that, and I learned my favorite fact ever about uh, black holes. It, the the word that is is associated to what would happen to you or anything really if you fell into spaghettification. So good, <laughs> so good. I love that word. So Sorry, much. I didn't mean to steal your punchline. No. I just love that word too. I'm like, yes, I know exactly what word he's talking about. Yeah, so good, so good. Well, the, yeah. So was, it, was the was the movement was the third movement entitled spaghettification? It it wasn't, but um, it uh, I think I can't remember what I titled them, but I definitely referenced that in the program notes and the entire form of the movement was like that process of spaghettification. You take something uh, long and then it splits in two and then it splits in mm -hmm. two and then it splits in two and gets longer, you know, so yeah. That's but, fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, let's go, let's get into some of the pieces that uh, you sure. brought and you wanted to share. I mean, it helps, Alan, that you are a composer of one of them. So let's look at that piece first. So this oh, is- Oh, you're, you're, you are, you're, you're just, uh, Playing to my heart right there. <laughs> so you're here, so let's talk about your music first. <laughs> like, I don't hate that, man. Right. <laughs> so this piece is, there are so many TikTok from the piece When You Touch. So Alan, tell me about this piece. What is this song about and what is the, the broader um, uh, the cycle about? Um, so when the when Megan and I did uh, the, the 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 very first outings of this world of yes um, in March of 2017, after we got done with that, I said, okay, look, what do you wish you had in your repertoire? What do you wish we had in our repertoire um, that is a bit different than anything else you have or we have? She said, well, as a mezzo, I just sing so many damn elegies. Everything is such a downer. Everything is such a bummer. It's just kinder totem leader all the way down. All yeah. the way. All the way. And, and she was like, I would just love something that is funny and fun and sexy. And I went, say no more. I have just the thing. I had just purchased a volume of, of erotic poetry by E.E. E. Cummings. And so I said, well, if you're looking for funny and witty and weird and sexy, there you go. Um, so I wrote a set of three songs for the two of us, and the entire set is called When You Touch. And the first movement um, is, is kind of a 12-tone blues. Uh, the second movement is a performance art piece uh, that we could talk about at some point later. And the third song is There Are So Many TikTok. Um, and I cast it as a Stravinsky and Roomba. Um, and I actually wrote the opening motive of the song while sitting bored in a faculty meeting. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of like sketched it on the back of whatever the day's it. agenda was because, you know, I had to make better use of my time. 
Um, and so I went home that night and kind of sketched it out. And, and so there are only, uh, you know, there are so many TikTok is only about a minute and 40 seconds long. Um, but it's a song that we both love performing in our duo because it's short, sweet and to the point. It's new music-y, it's funny, it's fun. Um, it involves Megan doing all sorts of uh, vocal percussion and there are finger snaps and it's just a hoot uh, for us to perform. Yeah, so uh, let's just listen to it right now. This is There Are So Many TikTok from the piece When You Touch. everyone. My name is Jamie Lee Sampson. I'm a co-owner of Adjective New Music LLC and a proud member of the Adjective Composers Collective. I hope that you're enjoying this week's episode of Lexical Tones. If you like what you hear, please feel free to check out the previous seasons of this podcast via SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Adjective New Music website, where we explore a diverse array of sound worlds being created by the musicians of the 21st century. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Andrea Rankemeyer, performed by the University of Oregon Wind Ensemble, conducted by Dr. Rodney Dorsey, and the University Singers, directed by Dr. Sharon Paul. Feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Andrea Rankemeyer's The Thaw. Thank you. 
now, let's continue this week's episode of Lexical Tomes. All right. Um, next, I wanted to go to your piece or the piece uh, Aviatrix by Gelsey Bell. And this was written for for you. So who is Gelsey Bell and how did you get connected? Oh, my gosh. Gelsey Bell is this amazing vocalist, composer, you know, uh, just very talented artist and literal she, Broadway star. Yeah, literal <laughs> Broadway star. She lives in she lives in Brooklyn now. She lives yeah. in New York. And uh she I became aware of Gelsey's work through her performance with Ghost Quartet. And and obviously she she was also in uh The Great Comet on Broadway. And and so she's done all sorts of awesome stuff. She's a Robert Ashley like scholar. She's she's oh, like wow. very wonderful person like uh, like beautiful thinker and so we were talking about composers that we wanted wanted to work with and I <laughs> of course I was like I was like oh my gosh could you imagine working with Gelsey Bell <laughs> like, and Alan's like we should ask her and I was like we can't ask her it was like <laughs> and he's like emailing and she's like and like she responds and she's like yeah, I'd love to write something for you. And I was like, oh my God. So I'm just over here like fangirling the whole time. Just like, I can't, I can't contribute to this at all. I, like, I'm just like not doing anything to help. But, and we had said, you know, we, we really just want to work with you. And this, her piece is not part of one of the touring productions, but we really wanted to work with her on something. And we were thinking about it especially in the context of a music video or something that lives specifically in that documentation as well. And so we asked her, you know, is there anything that's on your mind? Do you want to write about something? She's like, well, it's, you know, 19th amendment, like anniversary. I really want to write about women pilots and, and kind of in this loose abstract kind of way, I would write, like to write this piece about, you know, aviatrix. Like I would like to write about them and we're like, excellent, great. So she gets started and she comes back and she she writes she writes me an email and she goes, Megan, uh, are you comfortable with overtone singing at all? She's like, it's becoming increasingly important in this piece. <laughs> and I was like, well, I haven't done it yet, but I'm willing to learn. And so so I actually got to just like hang out with Gelsey on a Zoom once and like learn from her all of her thoughts on overtone singing and practice it and and so it became, it's part of, you know, very much part of this piece. We premiered this at Navy Saxophone Symposium last year. So yeah, January of 2020. Mm-hmm. And and I just love this piece. I'm sure you can say more about it, but um, that's that's kind of, I love the, the storytelling quality of this, the way that she uses what we might call extended techniques, you know, certain techniques for both voice and saxophone in very thoughtful ways. One of the things that we really like to talk to composers about is making sure that if they're excited by a sound or, you know, a technique, making sure that it's not just novelty, like we've talked about, but coming from an idiomatic place, what is this doing in the context of your piece? Is it helping to tell the story that you want? Is it helping to flesh out the sound world that you're, you're trying to achieve? Yeah. and, And we just, we've, become enamored with this piece it's really beautiful there's a lot of great space and architecture that Gelsey sets up in the work 
and we've only had a chance to perform it live once because of you know we we did the world premiere right before pandemic hit um but it was really great that right after the performance, uh, there was a young woman who came up to us and she said, oh, my God, that piece just made me cry. It was so great. Um, and so that's something that's that's really fantastic when you're in a new music ensemble and you emotionally impact an audience member that way. Um, so we just we really love this piece. It's filled with space. It's filled with all of this beautiful overtone singing that Megan does and it allows us to interact as a duo in a really emotionally impactful um, and storytelling significant way. Yeah, I was going to ask about the overtone singing because that doesn't seem like a technique you would necessarily learn in school. So you just learned from the composer, like this is how you do it. Like this is kind of what you focus in on uh, physically to do it. Well, and it helps because Gelsey is an incredible new music singer performer. So, uh-huh. like, so obviously, that's not necessarily something that I require composers to know beforehand. It's just yeah. that I was going. She happens to be the composer who also understands like how to do overtone yeah. singing, and so we talked about it that way. Um, and then I and there's multiple resources. I uh, I'm gonna mess up her name, but it's like Anna Hef. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, You know, everybody has seen her videos. And so she does such a beautiful job of explaining the certain ways that you create the sounds and, and how to shape them and change them and stuff like that. So between the, between, you know, Gelsey's experience and being able to teach it that way, as well as other people who, who teach this technique, Mm -hmm. uh, I was able to bring that into my, into my work. And so it's just a matter of, you know, when we, when we bring in new techniques, you know, you've heard the sound or there's a sound you're wanting to achieve and you go, okay, well, this is what I know about my instrument. And I, if I just change certain things, oh, I might get this sound. Cool. Like I'm going to just build off of that. So this is kind of, an, you know, for anybody who's listening, who does the, you know, plays maybe slightly more traditionally and, and they're wanting to explore more. It's really just that idea of like, What's a sound that you're enamored with? What's a sound that you're wanting to create? And then what do you know about how your instrument works so that you can start to achieve that that effect mm-hmm. and in a healthy and sustainable, replicable kind of way? Yeah. Um, over, I, I became kind of interested in overtone singing. I was, I was, it was actually when I was um, trying to interview for jobs uh, when I was uh, looking for a new job coming out of my job in China. And, you know, they're, you know, they make you do like teaching stuff and uh, like teaching videos or whatever. And at that point, when I needed to turn something in, we weren't actually in session in China. So I was like, I can't like I can't do a teaching demo. So I just gathered some students who were willing and I developed this lecture on like timbre and overtone singing was actually kind of one of the ways I got into timbre because you know, I, I can't really do it, but I can at least do it a little bit. And, um, it, you know, if you, if you hook up, uh, your voice to a microphone and then to a spectrograph, which I, which I do in max, you can actually see the overtones moving in the spectrograph yeah. when you do these changes. And it's like, I still use that, uh, to this day in my electronic music classes. And like when students see it, it's like, Oh, I 
kind of understand how the voice works a little bit now because it's like when you, <laughs> when you break when you break like this is how speech works there's there, you can't have speech without all of this complex stuff and they're like <gasps> you know that kind of blows their mind a little bit so i love and yeah that video that you're talking about oh my god she's like singing she's basically doing overtones singing with scales and oh it's so right right it's so it incredible wild. yeah yeah it's wild yeah yeah well, let's uh, let's listen to this piece. So this is Aviatrix by Gelsey Bell.
All right. So now we're going to come to a piece that wasn't written specifically for you, but you arranged. And uh, this is All of Our Love. Hang on. Sorry. Let me try that again. Uh, uh, How do you pronounce the guy's last name? Zulik. Zulik. Okay. So now we're going to get to a piece that you uh, that was not written specifically for you, but you arranged. And this is Nick Zulik's From All of Our Love, This Was Lost. So how many, I mean, it's, it kind of sounds like at this point, you don't have many arrangements in your, in your rep. So, so what was it about this piece uh, that kind of called to you? And what was the original instrumentation? Um, this is a really fascinating story because this, uh, this piece was actually a part of our very first performance together. Mm -hmm. And when Megan and I were on the phone trying to figure out what repertoire we were going to do for our very first performance together, uh, we started talking about Nick Zulik, who is a saxophonist and composer whom we both know and are friends with. And Megan said, oh, I love Nick Zulik and I love his work. And I said, I love Nick Zulik and I love his work. Um, And we got talking about this piece from All of Our Love, This Was Lost. And what's fascinating is that this piece is originally for voice and saxophone. But it's for one player. It's for for one person. So when Nick performs it... He sings the voice part while playing the saxophone part, and it creates this really intense kind of rumbling yeah. because of you know you you get to hear these 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 timbres like really kind of clashing and mixing in the yeah. horn. And so, believe it or not, this is an arrangement of a piece for voice and saxophone for voice and saxophone. <laughs> And, and so we, you know, so I, I said, well, maybe Nick would be okay with us doing a, a, a version of this piece, but doing it um, with two separate performers. And so uh, we wrote to Nick and asked for permission. And he said, well, you know, gee whiz, I've never really conceived of it that way. I'm not opposed to it. How about this? How about do it once and then I'll hear it and then I'll let you know if I'm cool with it. Um And so the very first performance that we gave was at Graceland University and it was live streamed and Nick was listening and we ended our entire program with our arrangement of this work of his. And uh, so we got done with the recital and we went backstage and I looked at my phone and I saw four text messages from Nick Zulik and I was like oh man I was like he hates it and he's like what have you done to my piece of music and so I opened it up and it's just this all caps of barrage of F yes oh my god that's incredible oh my god I've never thought of this piece before or heard it before and and so I was like I just held up my phone to Megan I was like I think we have Nick's blessing Um, and since then I would say we have performed that piece live in excess of two dozen times in the past years at least maybe 30 plus times it's just a piece that is near and dear to our hearts um, and became an integral part of this world of yes. Oh, and we call it like our, our renaissance pop piece, our ren pop piece. Ren pop. Because ren pop. the way that we do it in this, in, in this arrangement is like, is a focus on very pure lines. And so it's such a different sound than, than the way that Nick performs it with like the kind of distortion that happens with a voice like and saxophone one person which both of them are super, super cool, but they're they're just such different 
uh, executions of us of a similar idea. And I, I love it. And it's one of those, we were talking earlier about, about performing multi, like performing the same show in multiple places. And honestly, this is a piece, a uh, mixed piece is one of the pieces where audience members have come to see us at different locations on a tour to hear the piece again. Cause they were like, Aww. they were like, just love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah. So I love, I love that Megan brought up. Yeah. This is our Ren pop piece. This is, this sounds like a pop songwriter took a 16th century counterpoint class. Um, yeah. And this piece is the result. And I say that in all the best possible ways. Um, yeah. We both really love this piece. Um, and it's also a piece that is, easy for any audience member to map on whatever emotional arc they want to onto this piece. So it's really fascinating that we've had audience members, you know, tell us, Oh my gosh, this is, this is about death and, and heartbreak and grief. And then other people say, Oh, this is about a, a relationship where the, the two people separated and then came back together. And it seems like everybody builds their own emotional narrative arc about this piece when they listen to it. Um, and to me, that's, that's always the mark of a really spectacular piece of art is when yeah. so many different viable interpretations can exist. Yeah. And I think the title is just vague enough that it can support all of those different um, right. interpretations of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you, I mean, did, were you thinking, because this was your first tour and you said that Megan had booked like three shows, not one. So were yes. you thinking like, oh, if he doesn't like this, we got to come up with another closer? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, I mean, knowing us, we probably just would have done it at the other two. We've been like, sorry, Nick, you know how it goes, right? Like, <laughs> we said one gig, we meant one tour, our bad. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, if he had said, I absolutely hate this, please stop doing it. I mean, we, we could have reworked something by yeah. literally the next day's performance, I'm sure. But Well, it was so funny because when we did that performance at UMKC, it was when CBDNA was also in town in oh, Kansas sure. City. So yeah. we ended up doing a gig that we thought was going to be essentially like comp forum at UMKC, ended up being people from all over the country, composer friends, director friends that just were like, Hey, is it cool if we pop into your show? Like, <laughs> and one of those was adjective member Jen Jolly. Jen Jolly. Hey. So. <laughs> she was she was literally at MIATP's second performance ever. Awesome. <laughs> All right, well yeah. let's let's hear this the uh, this Ren Pop piece. This is Nick Zulik, and from all of our love, this was lost.
And now for something completely different, um, let's talk about The Clockmaker's Doll by Mara Gibson. Microtonal yeah. music for voice and saxophone. So yes. I'm wondering, like, Megan, how do you approach singing micro microtonal intervals? I mean, you don't just have a button that you can push to, like, <laughs> hey, make yes. this make this quarter Advantage flat. Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of prep do you have to do uh, to to prepare for for this uh, this piece? Honestly, this was also one of those things where I didn't I didn't study like how to sing microtonal music in graduate school. I'm sure I could have, you know, Phyllis Brynjolfsson is incredible. Like would have definitely been like, oh sure, honey, this is how you do it. But she had perfect pitch. So she would have been like, well, just do it. Just do it. <laughs> like, she just, she just, does have a button to push. Right, she does in her brain. She's like, oh yeah, no. And so, <laughs> so this was one of those things. I went to a festival in Austria in 2015, something like that. And actually the, the, these two things kind of coincide because that was the first time that Mara and I spent time together was right after that festival. I met up with her and Michael Hall in Vienna mm -hmm. and, and they, they happened to be on a trip for a tour that Michael was doing that Mara had written music for. So they were on that trip and I, and I joined them, but I was at this music festival in Austria and I had to sing all sorts of microtonal music. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how you're supposed to do this. <laughs> like, just, what, what, what happens to how, how? <laughs> and, um, and so I, I kind of like, I just was before I had gone and I was like, okay, do you just do like, what do you change something? And I realized that I was like, oh, okay. I'm very used to these these interval structures that I've been taught all along the way, right? You know, half steps and whole steps. And then I was like, but there are, you know, there are intervals that are smaller than that. And I can learn what that is. The way that I figured it out for myself was getting in a practice room and using a tune, a tuner that shows you the sense, yeah. you know, the, you know, uh, plus 15, minus 15, that kind of thing. And, and then, and then being like, okay, if this is the pitch, this is what like less 15 sounds like and not changing the, the technique that you're using to create it, but changing your, like your, what's your uh, concept of hearing it, right. Your mm -hmm. ability to hear the intervals as, as they are. And so that's, I'm sorry, that's a long winded way of saying oh, that this great. is how we get to that place, which is if you don't have a button to push, you have to, you have to be able to hear it and you have to teach yourself that that's the size of that interval, the same way that you teach yourself the size of half steps and whole steps and, mm -hmm. and other intervals, right. And all of that. So that's how I practice that. And then when it has come into, you know, things that I've sung since then, I'm like, okay, this is how I prepare that is getting in a room, knowing what the pitch is and then being able to change that with, and then with the help of a tuner, really isolating, this is what, you know, the different microtones, quarter tones, et cetera, mm -hmm. sound like. Um, so that's how I, that's how I prepared this piece. And then from that, from that same festival, that's when I met Mara and was hanging out with Mara and Michael and had that moment of just being like, you know, those magical times when people are like, we should work together. Yeah. Same as this one. And you're like, oh, okay. I get, uh, sure. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I mean, he oversold the no before. Like that was a, so you're like, I don't know how that's going to happen, but sure. Great. And, and then with Michael and Mara, it was the same thing where we just started working together on things. And, and Mara and I have developed another, like a composer relationship. So she wrote a piece for Michael and me. And then she wrote one for the two of us. And she's also written one for Voice and Bassoon in another ensemble that I'm in. And they all kind of work together. So in fact, we're doing them as a pastiche opera this, this sem- semester for we're going to video record them very mm-hmm. soon. And then it'll probably premiere in May or something like that. Um, so that's kind of some of the backstory around Clockmaker's Doll. And we've worked really hard to kind of tell tell a very sincere emotional story through this through this piece so that it's not just look at it look at these like look at these microtones isn't it weird but more like this is exactly the kind of sound that you need to tell this story right so so what is the story like where does the text come from what's the what's the story of the text that you're telling um, so I actually, I think Megan would, would best, uh, describe, uh, the, this text because you, you have a relationship with the poet of this. Yeah. Well, and Mara, and it's very funny because Mara and the poet went to high school together in this very small high school and they had reconnected at a concert that Michael and I were doing. And so she used Rebecca Morgan Frank's poetry for this one and the voice and bassoon piece so Descartes' daughter is the name of the poem that's from Rebecca Morgan Frank's Oh, You Robot Saints. It's a recent book. And so we worked together to create this story that, so Descartes' daughter had passed away and he recreated her likeness in a doll. Mm-hmm. And the, the poem is about Descartes taking this doll on, on a ship, on a boat, and the captain seeing this doll and throwing it overboard like getting rid of it essentially is that is the concept of it and so this idea that he's so deep in his grief over the loss of his daughter that he recreates her likeness and yet that is still even taken from him and and that to be to be alone in your grief in that way i think is is part of what this what this piece ultimately gets to. So there's this beautiful dichotomy juxtaposition of very plastic sounds and very organic sounds in this. And I do think that that's a lot of where the microtonal work comes into play is giving this kind of feeling of gears and clock clock um, mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I lovingly think of this as our Stephen King piece. Okay. Um, <laughs> Red Pop, is, Stephen King. Okay. We're, yep. we're getting there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this where is, we're going. Yeah, exactly. This is the MIATP version of Needful Things or Pet right. Cemetery. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it is interesting what you were mentioning about, like, you can't press a button. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in learning this work because the saxophone part features microtonal chromatic scales, basically. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of got locked to do like, oh, I can just press a button. And then the the more I worked with the tuner, I was like, no, 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 I have to get these chromatic microtonal scales in tune. And then when we got together, I had to realize like, oh, wait a second, that microtone on, on my instrument is like 20 sets high. I have to pull that down. 
so that it right. gives Megan a fighting chance of locking in with it. Uh, because as you'll hear throughout the course of the piece, there are times where we're where we are performing a unison or a or a really striking consonants like a perfect fifth or a major third, and then microtonally moving toward each other, and then the other person will move out of that. And so it's a challenge to tune those that neutral third between a major third and a minor third. It's a challenge to one of the things that just blows me away that, that Megan performs is when I'm holding a static pitch and she sings a minor second above me mm-hmm. and then descends to a, the, the quarter tone between that and then into a unison, then back out um, and hearing those, those discrete pitches, especially we're, when we're in a really resonant um, acoustic yeah. space just sounds fantastic. Um, one of my favorite MIETP stories that I like to tell is when we performed this at the University of Southern Mississippi, we were performing this really acoustically resonant recital hall. And the first time we had a moment where I was sustaining a pitch and Megan uh, was singing these microtones descending into me, and then I perf- and then she reached my pitch and then I played some microtones out, Uh, There was a gentleman who was sitting just a couple of rows back and I saw his jaw drop and he turned to his partner and just mouthed, what the F? Um, (laughs) He didn't say F. And so I saw like we're performing and I see this guy's mouth, like mouth the words, what the fuck? Um, And and I was like, I got just distracted enough because I was like, oh yeah, that's what's up. I was like, yes. I was like, we're we are connecting this. This is great. Um, and so it's kind of a weird thing to be thinking, yes, we're doing the creepiest stuff possible. But again, I imagine that's how Stephen King feels when he has, you know, fans write him letters saying, you know, your novel kept me awake for weeks on end. Um and he's like, Yeah, nailed it. That's kind of how I feel whenever we uh perform this. That's what's up. Yeah. That's what, that's what's up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, all right. That's awesome. Well, uh, let's take a listen to it. So this is The Clockmaker's Doll by Mara Gibson. Duh. 
create such tiny dimensions. Even make the body move. We've come to uh, the last piece we're going to look at. This is by Andrew Rodriguez and called Oil Islands. Uh, so tell me about this work. It contains playback and is honestly kind of a departure from the, some of the other pieces we've heard today. Very much so. Um, one of the directions that we have taken our ensemble in the past couple of years, and we're definitely heading down this path, 
is that we want to be a duo that is truly open to doing any style or any genre of music um, that a collaborative musician would want to make for or with us. Um, and, you know, we, we have things in the works where there may very well be an MIATP plus big band um, performance or album or, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, uh, we have pieces that are inspired by heavy metal. We're doing yeah. stuff with looping and with um, uh, digital distortion on my saxophone. We're doing all kinds of things. Um and and so this piece, Oil Islands, the song uh, by Andrew Rodriguez, yeah, was was kind of one of our first forays into um, really exploring what types of styles and genres uh, we could make happen in our in our duo. Um, so that that we've actually never performed this piece live. The mm. the performance is the recording. Um, and what's all the more remarkable is not only is Andrew a, an outstanding composer and guitarist, but he's also a brilliant engineer. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so the entire track of Oil Islands was literally recorded and created in his back room in his house. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I think it sounds like a million bucks. Um, and Megan gets to do you know, some of her best uh, prog pop singing, uh, which she just crushes. Um, I get to play on both my classical and jazz alto setups and make all sorts of fun sound effects and, and be raw and raucous. Um, it, this is just a, 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 a summer banger. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and that's exactly what we wanted to, to create with Andrew and Andrew stepped up to the plate, called the shot, and just knocked it out of the park. It was incredible. Yeah. There's a, so there's a the, part. the text is by Andrew's friend, Jeremy De La Rosa, who's a wonderful poet. And I think that they've, you know, they've collaborated together in the past. And, and Andrew really pulled these ideas together. Uh, he also, you know, performs on it. You can hear his voice in the in the recording. Okay, so... that's what I was going to ask. I was going to, Alan, was that you or was that in also the? Also, Alan, yes, yeah. yes. Are you yeah. singing the, the backup? The backup vocals are by uh, Alan Tyson and Andrew Rodriguez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get you a band who can. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. And that's that's been again one of the really fun things about our ensemble as we've grown is that. We've we've stopped thinking of ourselves as a voice saxophone duo, and now we're just like, no, no, no we're we're two artists, we're two people. What can we do? Yeah, um, and that might be acting, that might be dancing, that might be moving on stage, that might mean Megan playing piano or viola, it might mean me singing, it might mean any of these things. Um, that the longer we've worked together as a duo, the more we're leaning into just okay, we're two people. What what can we create? Yeah. Rather than thinking of ourselves as a voice saxophone duo, it's more like, yeah, we're an artistic team. What can we make happen? Yeah. I got to say, I'm I'm kind of jealous that you get to sing this song. Um, I would like I would be channeling my inner Bjork for this. Like it's it oh, must yeah. it must feel really good on stage to like have that much sound behind you. Um, also to, like when the bass drops, like uh, right? that, must yeah. that must be a nice moment. <laughs> Well, and because you don't, when you're recording it, it's just you. You're just yeah. like, like ISO tracking those things. Yeah. And so definitely by the, like, 
when when it all came together and Andrew's like, you know, here and then and then this part happens and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is it, you're right. It's so much fun and and that, that's part of I think why we're so drawn to many styles or many styles that influence the kind of music that we make yeah. is because there's just so many cool things to do and try out and and it would be so limiting to think that we can only make music in a, in one way or one timbre one genre influence that kind of thing so it's always going to sound like us we're always going to have kind of that um you know we're, we're always going to have a quality that sounds very new musicy but then when you bring in these these various influences it provides a much richer tapestry for the things that you can do yeah, yeah. and just Y'all go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just going to say that, that I think that's so important what you just said um, that, you know, not only doing the things that like you do, but also doing the things that influence the things that you do. You know, there, there's the idea of like looking kind of looking backwards. OK, who who inspired this person and who inspired them and who inspired them? And it's like, you know, especially I mean, I just I just mentioned Bjork. I mean, you know. I, th- I feel like for me as a composer, Bjork, Radiohead, Nine Inch Nails, these these are groups that inspire me just as much as, you know, Berio or Ligeti yeah. or mm-hmm. Eleni Lilios or, you know, whoever. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Well, and, and in Neil's piece, in Neil Anderson Himmelsbach's piece for Black Meridian, he gives like a sing it like Radiohead like yeah. note in there. And I'm like, that makes it so much clearer. I know exactly what we're going for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so like, I, you know, it's going to be me making that sound, but with, with that inspiration, yeah. you're going to have a very interesting sound. You know, it's like, um, I'm not that much of a mimetic, you know, to be able to like reproduce it all right. of that. But with that information, it makes the, the sound just really come alive in a, in a very cool way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, let's hear it. This is Oil Islands by Andrew Rodriguez.
Okay, so I had to think about this because Megan, you've already been on the show and you've answered this last question before. So I'll I'll, mod- I'll modify a bit. So um, we'll just make Alan do it. <laughs> I'll be on the hot seat. Sure, let's do it. Yeah, Alan, how did you find music as the thing you wanted to pursue for your life? And then, what keeps you both in music? That's an addendum. Oh, like, what keeps mm-hmm. you in music? Not yeah. how did you yeah. how did you get there, but what what makes you stay? Um, so the thing that got me into music, I mean, deciding to go into music as my profession was a decision that happened relatively late in high school. I mean, it really wasn't until the end of my junior year of high school, beginning of my senior year, that I was even 
really convinced uh, that that's what I wanted to do. I mean, pretty late in the game, I was still considering things like I could, I was a bit of a math whiz kid. So I was like, I could do physics. I could be an engineer. I had a deep love of history. I was thinking about either history or English literature. Um, I thought about chemistry. Uh, I was just one of those hyper nerds in high school that just loved like every single subject. Um, and so it was really difficult for me, but I, I remember in my, the second semester of my junior year, um, no, the sec, uh, yeah, it was the second semester of my junior year, uh, my high school band, we performed a work by Carl Husa. Mm-hmm. And it just blew my mind and heart wide open in a way that I had never really experienced before. And this was also around the same time that I was starting to sketch uh, little tunes for me and my buddies to play in jazz band after the class period was over. And so between those experiences starting to happen, I went, okay, yeah, I I have this deep love um, and aptitude in a lot of these different subjects, but what's the subject that I'm spending the most amount of time thinking about and engaging with after school? Um, What's the thing that I'm lying awake in bed, staring at the ceiling at midnight thinking about? And I went, okay, well, that's music. Um, So that's what got got me into music. But also something that's steered my career in music ever since is the idea of choosing just one thing within the world of music just never seemed satisfactory to me. And I had so many professors give me terrible advice during my undergrad, especially saying, well, you know, if you don't pick one thing, you know, you'll be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And I'm glad I recognized um, that advice for the bullshit that it was mm-hmm. because I, I wisely ignored my sage elders and said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to make a run and do these five, six different sub careers within music. Um, and it's played out really well for me. And it's something that I still lean into. So I suppose a part of my answer of why I keep doing it is that it's just such an absolutely massive adventure uh, that if, if you're getting bored with a life in music, you are not, you're not looking hard enough. There's mm-hmm. so much you could try to do. Um, there's so much that's out there to explore with so many styles and so many genres and so many different career paths that one, that one can take. Um, that's what keeps me going is yeah. the idea of exploring as much as I possibly can in the world of music and then bringing that to other people. Um, I don't like staying siloed in this, uh, you know, sealed off uh, world of, of, of that new music can can be. I really love taking the things that I encounter intellectually and emotionally and spiritually in the world of new music and bringing them to to as, as many folks um, as I can find. Um, so that 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 adventure of exploration and then uh, and then translation, if you will, to to as wide of an audience as possible, just really keeps me going. I mean, that's that's uh, that's a journey that could take multiple lifetimes, let alone one. So that's what that's what keeps me going. I thought you were going to say like. Spite. <laughs> <laughs> no. Look, there's a dash of that too. 
longer have a chip on my shoulder. I've removed it and put it in my pocket for easier travel. But... <laughs> No, no. That's the that's, that's just... the name of your uh of your forthcoming uh solo saxophone album, uh Spite Sax. <laughs> Spite Sax. <laughs> we are Spite Sax. Uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um let's see. My what keeps me what keeps in music in is is people, honestly, is uh, one of the yeah. things that I've been thinking so much about during quarantine times is is my relationship to music and what it does mm. in my life. And and so it's about making music with other people. It's about making music for other people. And, and so I'm so inspired by creating... Well, honestly, I think of that, the performance space as being a an arena in which we can interface with our most profound human emotions. Mm. And I am obsessed with that space. And so I really want to invite people in to say like, this is a place that you can do this. And for all of the times that I've thought about, you know, um, like the work that you do with helping other people being like a teacher or being a therapist or being like any of those kind of helping sides of myself, I've really found a home for them in that performance experience with all of the themes that I get to sing about. Mm -hmm. And so when I am very close to that intention, that's what keeps me in music. When I drift farther away from that intention, Mm -hmm. that's when I start to go like, maybe this isn't for me. (laughs) And, and I think, you know, Rob, I think you and I actually talked about that on, on lexical tones was a story that I shared about, when I when I really was convinced that I was done in music, yeah. and I was like, okay, well, this is nice. I'm done now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And and so uh, and that was part of why I stayed and why I keep staying is is the stuff that that taught me about is not not about um, you know just the certain metrics of like did I win this award or did I get to like did I get this grant or something like that, but more of more of that intangible human experience. And if I stay close to that, then I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Well, we're so glad that you weren't done, that you stayed, because you guys are same. awesome. Likewise. Same, yeah, yeah. It's right. of you. <laughs> yeah. well, so, and, and, and I, you know, if, if, if I could be uh, a little weird or trippy for just a second, um, the other day, Megan and I were listening to um, a lecture by Terrence McKenna, where he was talking about um, the artist as a contemporary incarnation um, of the old shamanic tradition where the, the shaman brought together the scientist, the artist, and the doctor and went to a space that transcended normal existence and then brought that knowledge back uh, to, to the people um, of their community. And and we we paused the lecture and we were talking about how much that resonated with us, that the idea of the contemporary artist isn't just a scientist researcher. Oh, look, I figured out how to do all these microtones with my voice or with my saxophone Mm -hmm. Um, and the artist. Oh, look, I've, I've learned to do all of these things with my voice or with my saxophone or as a composer, but also the doctor part of it. 
-hmm. right? Where you take that research, you take that artistic aptitude or technique or creative ability, and then you bring it to your community and you use that to heal them. You use that to transform them in some substantive, very real, very powerful way. Um, and I think sometimes, and we, we were talking about that, we think sometimes that um, that third spoke gets lost a lot. Yeah. When we talk about building careers in music, we tend to be really obsessive about the scientific aspect and the artistic aspect, but not the doctor aspect, not the part that interfaces with human beings and asks them what they need and what, how we can help our communities and help our audiences grow. Um, and so I think that that's something that is really important in MIATP, that that's a, a huge cornerstone of, of what we do in our mission is, yeah, we love we love being new music badasses, but it doesn't quite mean anything unless we're connecting it with an audience and making them expand and enrich uh, their spiritual landscape. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. Well, before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find uh, your performance, like recordings of your performances or connect with you on like social media or something like that? So uh, obviously come on over to our website, MIATP.com. And we have a Facebook page and an Instagram account that is MIATP specific. And then you can always find us on our various social socials. You know, we're pretty present there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. But um, our website, MIATP.com, that's, uh, I agree with Megan, that's that's the number one place to, to, to stop and hear recordings and connect with us on social media and shoot us messages mm -hmm. and find out what it is that we're about and what we offer. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. It. Megan, Alan, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. much. This is incredible. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>